Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Johannes Leitz from the Rheingau here today on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, Levy. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Very nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you. You're based in around Rudensheim in, in the Rheingau of Germany. Yes, that's true. It's a little village, 7,000 inhabitants, a very old village based directly on the Rhine River. And, and that part, what we say, is a lower part of the Rheingau Valley. Your grandfather and father worked the vineyards after the war, but then your dad died fairly young at a young age yes he was age 33 so the history in our family wine wise goes back easily until 1744 uh, but the real let's say estate was founded for my grandfather after the second world war in 1947 with the passing of your dad how old were you at that time as my father passed away um, i was 14 months old yeah did you have older brothers no, I have an older sister. So who was maintaining the winery between the, that period of time and when you took it over later? That was definitely my mother and later some um, friends and family members and so on. I think it was a very, very tough time because you have to imagine that Rüdesheim, uh, in the end of the Second World War in November 1944, got totally bombed and makes sense. Everyone asks, why have they done this? They want to destroy Germany as much as possible, and they also destroyed uh, the vineyards. So as my father and grandfather started that winery in 47, they had to do a lot of things. They haven't took over a classical estate or winery. It was a destroyed thing. It means they started not even from zero. They have to re replace all the dry walls. They got bombed and so on, and there was more or less nothing to buy. No posts, no wires, no crafted wine. So they had to craft their own wine and so on. So as my father died in 65, it was not that uh, it was, again, a real good running winery. There was still something like startup thing. And uh, I think it was a very, very hard time for my mother. Not even that her big love, my father died. It was that she had two small children to take care of. And she had nothing to do with the winery. She... She came from a gardener family with a flower shop. Um, that is what she learned. So also to be more or less a winemaker was brand new for her. So I had some um, 
relatives. They are they was Thelemasters, and they helped her. But the may, most work in the vineyard, like all the canopy work, etc., that was mostly done for my mother, and yeah, mostly in summer by eighteen working hours a day. Sort of getting up early and going to bed late. I woke up very often as I was a child. My mother was not there. I was. I know exactly where she was. She was in the vineyard. So very often she start uh, with the first daylight in the morning, and then she came home at seven and made us ready for school, made breakfast, and then uh, she opened the flower shop from eight till noon. In between, she cooked lunch for us, and uh, during the lunch break. We came home from school and helped in the vineyard too. And from three until seven in the evening, she had the flower shop. And even after that uh, in the flower shop, she or sometimes we too had also to go back to the vineyards. And that was honestly makes sense uh, a time where I never want to be a winemaker because honestly, I hated it in this time to go. Yeah. In the winter, especially on a Saturday, Saturday was the most working day for us. So all my friends was playing soccer, was in the pool, but I had to go to the vineyard. Now, honestly, I love it uh, that that happened because I can look back nearly to 35 years of vineyard uh, experience. So as a young boy, you were often there in the vines and... I really learned pruning with 12, 13 years. I drove tractor, what was not allowed, because you are only allowed to drive a tractor with 16. But my stepfather at that time, he drove out the tractor. Um, I was standing on the back, and during he worked in the vineyard, I was driving the tractor. So, yeah, I, I, I really would say even with age 14, I was maybe a full professional vineyard worker. I know everything by that time. What made you decide, you know what, this was for me? Because it sounds like sometimes it wasn't always fun as a kid. Yeah, it was. The first step was that my mother always told me, I do all that for you. That was more or less that pressure. I really don't want to do it. I honestly want to become a chef as I was a child because I really love to cook. And, you know, Rüdesheim is a very, very touristy city. So all my, um, the most of my friends was related to hotels and restaurants. So I grew up either in vineyards or in, in kitchens uh, with friends uh, hotel and I always loved it and I, I really had to cook for my home family even with a very young age because mostly I did not want to wait until my mother finished lunch so I started to cook so I really want to become a, a chef but uh, again my mother always said wow I, I only do that for you and for in the memory of your father and so on and I definitely decided to do that I could go to Geisenheim to the Wiese Wine University but uh, it was clear I have to go another way because uh, that would be too much don't misunderstand waste of time so I made a two-year apprenticeship and after that, uh, I went three years in winter to a master class. So in that time, and I'm really, really thankful to my to the place where I made my apprenticeship, I really slowly start to fall in love with it. There was some different circumstance, but I really think the most was there that coming from a very not an old winery, but a winery with only old tractors, uh, not very maintained vineyards and no success, I, I 
made my apprenticeship in a very wealthy winery and I really saw what what you could do not only money wise evenly for your reputation and for your self-confidence so I think it started slowly with 17 18 that I really think wow it's not only that it is something what I should do it, it's really something what I want to do you could take some pride in in the quality of the wines as the thing is it, it changed so much what I hated as a child is now that I really don't want to change with anyone in the world I have friends all over the world and make sense let's say have jobs everything from surgeons pilots accountants chefs too but I really don't want to change with anyone I, I love it so much to be a winemaker because for me it's one of the most flexible professions or jobs in the world and that is what I really love honestly I could not concentrate on something so long. For me, it would be a nightmare to do every day is the same. And what I really, really love is that I'm so flexible um, in that shop. You are not even, you plant your vines, you grow the grapes, uh, you press them, and you have that really nice metamorphosis uh, from a, let's say, boring thing like a grape juice coming to an, into such an interesting thing like wine and to salad is a lot of fun too so with all that i never would been so far 39 times in america and in scandinavia and so on so the combination um what means to be a winemaker in the 21st century i think is is, is really special when you took over the estate how many hectares of vines did you own that was more or less uh, what was in the family always. It was 2.5 hectares because you have to imagine that the Rüdesheim vineyards, they have one of the steepest we have. It's not as steep as Mosul, but I think 65 degrees angle is steep enough. And from the 9th century, so some vineyards uh, are planted uh, from the Emperor Charlemagne, Charlemagne. Uh, they was very terracized, uh, really looks like Doro now. Unfortunately, they changed this in the 1960s, 70s. But at this time, it was uh, maybe 60% uh, more work to work on that terraces vineyard. So, for example, in winter, a work of my father and grandfather was not only pruning, it was always bringing back the earth on the bottom of a terrace, what they hoe down the whole summer. Uh, with some backpacks, they brought it up to the top of the terrace and they had to repair the drywalls and so on. So that was a time where one or two guys could not do more than two and a half uh, hectares uh, steep slope. And the vineyards there was able to work in, it means they were not terrorized. Um, uh, they had to work by hordes. So I took over in more or less 85 as I finished all the apprenticeship, I took over 2.5 hectares. Yeah. And you had said that it was important during the period of your grandfather and father to do their own grafting. It was no doubt their own grafting. That was what my mother always told me and what I heard from friends that was one of the few people at this time who was really able to craft. It's um, a real, real difficult thing and say yes you could not buy any crafted wine at this time after the war so they crafted their own vines and uh, planted them so they were one of the first to replanted vineyards after the second world war 
And I really heard that my father slept some weeks uh, in the vineyards next to the new vines to protect them, that not any neighbor steal them. Because it was hard to find the vine material. They would, I wouldn't say it was impossible to find for, let's say, maybe the first six, seven years after the war. So you take that legacy, and how many hectares do you own of vineyards today? I don't own so many we work finally on because um, A, I would not have the money to buy them all. B, the owners would not sell them. And I think also that is what I once learned in school. It's not so smart even when I would have some money and had the chance to buy them. It would, uh, would be um, economy-wise not so smart to buy all them. So what I did to come from 2.5 hectare now to nearly 60 hectares is that we have uh, next to the own vineyards, we rent a lot of vineyards where we work on. And then we have some uh, grape contracts with really good friends. Uh, they work in their vineyards after our advice and supervision. There are so many, and that's really a good thing for us. I think it's the same in California, that there are a lot of grape producers. There are a lot of people, they really, they don't have anything to do with harvest, with pressing, with winemaker. And that's a great thing for us. So um, we tell them, uh, what to do on their own land. So sad is that we do maybe now having 20 hectares we really own. It's nearly 40 hectares. I work with my own guys and we have 20 hectares where we get grapes from grape contracts. And that seems like fairly successful expansion over the period of time of your life. You're 50 now. Uh, yeah, in, in, in four months, yes. <laughs> and so... What was the drive for you to build to that point? Because that's a, you know, it's a fairly large change. I think it was not a real drive. Should I say it was a floating? As I started, it was sure with 2.5 hectares that I could not survive with that. So I never really want to grow big. There are some great producers on the Mosul, like Hark and Prim. Um, they really do a great job on 7, 10 hectares. And that was always my um, idea to, to really be seven hectares, independent, sold out, more or less straight, have nothing to do with uh, selling my wines and so on. And then what happened was that I was, I think, one of the first guy in Germany who really started to travel to sell his wine. I know there was not even a handful of winemakers, a went frequently to England, America, let's say the major markets in the 80s, 90s for German wines. So I think no doubt I did not invent it, but I, I started relatively early to travel and sell my wine. And so it happens that my wines even, they was pre-sold in the previous year. And at the same time, it was much, much easier to purchase more vineyards from really something on one hand side, like a generation change, you know, as the history is nearly the same like in Burgundy. It's, by the way, the same history that the monks from Burgundy, from Clairvaux, came in the 11th century to Rheingau to plant the vines. So there was something on one hand side, like a generation change, where there was so many private owner of only one or two vineyards and the generation 
after the war, they still worked in the vineyards on themselves, made a wine for themselves and for friends. And the next generation said, wow, I should go Saturday on a vineyard and work there. I want to watch soccer and I have enough money to buy uh, whatever I want. So that was a great chance for me to get uh, so much more vineyard. And especially at this time, it was no doubt, a, let's say, a trend away from the steep slope vineyards. So it's a it's a real crazy story that in the time as it was in the master school, there was a guy, he was really looking for a steep slope vineyard and for easily five years he could not find any square meter. And 10 years later, there was a young guy, he wanted to really give me his back Schlossberg, one of the steepest vineyard we have. He wanted to give his vineyard free. He said, I hate it. I don't make any money. I work like a horse on that vineyard. You can have it for free. So I honestly did not take it for free but only for a couple of euros per square meter so that was the two combinations that it was relatively easy at this time raising up from seven hectares to at this time maybe 40 hectares again that was a generation change and uh, the fact that in this time really german wine was not quality wise where they are now and while I traveled so much and I always was really export oriented, uh, it was very, very easy always for me to sell my wine. So even now with more than 500 bottles, it's not that we really have to sell them. And um, yeah, what has for sure a lot to do is that we meanwhile deal with 28 different countries. At the same time, you decided to focus on Riesling and not do other grape varieties so much. And Where did that focus come from? Honestly, at this time, as I decided that, it was not that I tasted so much wine. In this time, I, I still talk about uh, the 80s. You know, there were some wine scandals, more or less uh, German, Austrian, Italian wine industry was on the floor. And uh, at the same time, red wine became a big hype with that French paradox and other white varieties like Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris came up uh, very big. So I really was thinking, wow, where should my way go? Even handling Barrique French oak was very big in Germany. At this time, there was something founded in Germany called the Barrique Forum. So I really was jumping back and forth, maybe like others, uh, getting specialized on Pinot or yeah, Pinot Gris and so on. But then I really thought... Um, and found out that Riesling is a great white variety and I have one of the best vineyard sites, one of the best climate conditions, uh, I think, in the world for Riesling. So I would be really dumb when I would, would not do that. And at this time, let's talk about 21, 20, age 21, 22, I fall more in love with wine and I really fall in love with Riesling. And so it was relatively... Yeah, fast, clear, said I want to be Riesling based. And there was for a long, long time where we had 100% Riesling. But you know, I took over so many vineyards and there were some packages where people said, when you want to have my Riesling vineyards, you have to take my Pinot. So more or less coincidentally, I came to 1% Pinot, but I'm still a total Riesling geek. Walk me through the vineyards you own today in Rudensheim. What are the differences and what are the different parcels? 
makes sense that uh, every grower is a little patriot and and think his hometown or his area is best. Uh, but maybe let me introduce whole Rheingau a little bit. We are located on the River Rhine. Makes sense. That's where the word Rheingau comes from. And you really have to separate it in two total different, let's say, characters or faces. Um, what happened in general is that the Rhine River, what comes from the south, Switzerland, going nearly 800 miles straight north to Netherlands, to the North Shore, very close to Wiesbaden, that's 20 miles from Frankfurt, the river hits a mountain called Taunus and it can't go further north. So it changes the flowing direction for around about 20 miles and it goes from east to west. And exactly in Rüdesheim, it hits another mountain called Hounsback and it flows back north. So this 20 miles are completely south facing. So what happened is that uh, the mountains in the back also protect us from the cold continental climate. So I really would say is the climate in Rheingau is perfect for Riesling. It's warm, not too warm. It could be very warm on some summer days, but always at night, because we are so far north on the 50s latitude, it really chills out overnight. And you know that temperature change into the night brings all that great fruit aromas, what Riesling can show and what I really love into wine. And the most important thing is that you really have to divide Rheingau in that what we say upper and lower Rheingau. So upper Rheingau means the area more or less from Eltville down to Rüdesheim, slope rolling hills. When you see them first time, you I'm always reminded to Burgundy. And from Rüdesheim, the countryside changed completely into one of the steepest vineyards like you find, I think, in Germany or in the world. So how I said before, um, one of the steepest vineyards are 65 degree angle. And that brings us a total different uh, soil variety. So in the upper Rheingau, you have mostly sediments of past glacial lakes, so sand, loam, clay. You find fish bones, you find shark teeth, and so on. And in Rüdesheim, even in, in less than one kilometer, every cha everything changed dramatically. And you find different type of rocks. And in some vineyards, like in back Kaiser Steinfels, you find more or less only rocks. When I show picture of this vineyards, when some of the dry walls collapse and you really see how it looks, it's, it's maybe 80 centimeters of a little bit what you could call soil. But underneath you find really solid rocks, what no doubt uh, roots of vines are able to grow in. So the, the three major soil components in the Rüdesheimer Bag, Bag is a German word for mountain, is quartz, real solid rocks. They've never been below sea level. That's on the top of the hill. And in the bend of the river, uh, from tectonal movement, you find a type of uh, quartz what was long time below sea level. And the uh, Quartz stones are weathered, and especially the iron inside uh, are oxidized. So that gives a real red pinkish color. So that it's even when it's strange, even when it's quartz, it's called in German red slate. And on the foothill, more to Rüdesheim, down on the river, you find gray slate, but totally different than Mosel. I'm a big Mosel fan, and I love uh, the style of the wine 
influence from the Blue Devonian Slate. But the Rhine River Slate is much, much older and was also a couple of million years below sea level. So it's really pale, it's gray and very weathered. So you really can break it in your finger and gives a total different type uh, of slate aromas and uh, Mosel wine shows. The vineyard you're most known for would be which? No doubt these vineyards with that four letters Berg in front. Uh, what should indicate on the la uh, label it comes from a steep slope. And I know very many people really can't handle uh, the German word, but I think they are not so much different than Morache. So means um, close when you come from the village and you go more west, you have a vineyard what comes, uh, what is called back Rotland. Uh, that is where we have the Cray Slate. Then more west you come to a vineyard what is called back Rosenegg. And uh, further west, on top of the hill, you have a vineyard called back Kaiser Steinfels. So it's hard to translate, but it really would mean Emperor Stone Rocks, because again, it was advice from Emperor Charlemagne to make the first vines over there. And then there is a really, really great vineyard, what called back Schlossberg. Schloss is a German word for castle, and you know, after Rüdesheim, that part of the river is called Mittelrhein because uh, the river after the bend gets very, very narrow. And in the Middle Age, it was very, very easy for all the knights to get taxes and money from the rafters down the Rhine River. So for 20 miles, you find more than 30 very, very nice castles. And in the bend of the river is one of the oldest castle on the Rhine. It's from the 11th century. And the name of the castle is Ehrenfeld, but no Rüdesheim um, that it's a Schloss, Ehrenfels, we say it's a Schloss, so that is why well, this vineyard is called Schlossberg, you really could translate it into Castle Hill. And here we have weathered quartz, means the red slate, and in, again, Rosenegg and Kaisersteinfels, you have the unweathered quartz. You've spoken a little bit about the transition from a small estate that wasn't well-known and that was sort of run part-time by your mom to a larger estate. Was there a transition moment where you realized that you could make a bigger name for yourself in terms of, did someone discover you? Did you get international press? Did you get ranked highly somewhere? It really, it was not my idea to become big as a winery or famous, really not. I only want to make good wine because I had to the wife. I, uh, I know that even uh, with seven hectares, I need an outstanding quality to the wife. And maybe it's straight, uh, strange, I always call it a little bit uh, the eye of the tiger, that I was really hungry to do something. But I really, it was never that I closed my eyes uh, when I listened to music and saw myself as a famous winemaker, really not. So what I learned in school as I finished it was honestly that style of winemaking and agriculture, let's say, like in the 70s give a lot of fertilizer, the vines really uh, should sit on a big cloud chair and get all the fertilizers, don't have to move, um, yeah, like, uh, honestly, fat baby, and add a lot of cultured yeast, ferment as fast as possible, rack as fast as possible, yeast at this time was seen like an enemy, ferment into possible three weeks, rack next day, sulfur it, and so on, and I really know I had one of the best grapes in Germany, but I really never was happy with my wine. So at this time, I started to travel a lot, uh, 
especially to Germany and a little bit to Burgundy. Rüdesheim has one of the oldest twin city ships with Merceau. So I've been in my use very often to Merceau and I saw what they do with the wines. They put it in a cask, let them ferment and let them sit down until September. And I was really, really impressed by that. So it was 88, 89, where I really started to um, ferment my juice by itself. And really straight, I never forget, it was my cask number one, where I put a 88 Schlossberg inside and it started fermentation by itself. And then in 98, I put my first juice in that cask and then I put all that uh, fermenting juice into some other casks. And even in 90, I was able to ferment all my... Um, choose with more or less our own yeast you know that's another thing but there is a big discussion always with spontaneous fermentation of it if it's really wild yeast from the vineyard or it's a cellar yeast but anyway i really found out that um, my wines i think was a little different than the others and it was a very very nice situation for me as uh, there was a group of merso people even the mayor came to Rüdesheim and the Rüdesheim winemakers poured their own wine and I really saw in, the f in their faces that they really did not like the wine. And I poured my 90 back Schlossberg and really everyone came back, uh, even the mayor, and said, wow, may I have second class? And really that was the first time where I think, ooh, I think my wine's a little different. And not long ago or not long after that, uh, it was Stuart Pickett who really asked the German Wine Institute to say, I, I want to know more about Rüdesheim producer. It was no doubt once uh, one of the most famous villages uh, of German wines in, let's say, 90, uh, 1890s, 1920. I want to know more about it. And yeah, you always need a little bit of luck. Also, I had the four winning wine at that tasting. And Stuart only wrote two sentences in a German wine magazine. I tried wines from Rüdesheim. Dot best showed uh, Josef Leitz. And at this time in 91, after all that, let's say, little hole or desert after the wine scandal, I think everyone was uh, ready again for good Riesling. Crazy was not the Germans themselves. It was more <clears throat> other countries like America, England, and so on. So from all that, a lot of other magazines came uh, international but mostly german magazines and uh, really from that uh, i found terry Thiessen from america and my uh, british importer so that really in the decade from 90 till 2000 i sold my whole production to england and america so yes i really could say that i was discovered from Stuart pickett in 1991 when Terry took you on as a winery in his portfolio, how many other German wineries was he representing around that time? I really think, I don't know these numbers, even being now a part, uh, 22 years a part of the Terry family. I think it was 45, 50 wineries. Yes. So I think even in Rheingau there was four or five wineries. I know that there are more left the portfolios that he took new. Yeah, I, I, I really think uh, that there was in this time many more than there are now. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And so 
let's talk about the winemaking a little bit. One of the things that you're known for is leaving the wines on the leaves. You know, honestly, I always say I'm not a winemaker, but we can talk about winemaking. But, and I know that every winemaker say, oh, it's not my cellar work. Um, it's, it, the quality comes from the vineyard, but that's absolutely true. So I see myself more as a grape producer. On the other side, when you look to the climate uh, in, in Rheingau, especially lower Rheingau, and I forgot to tell this, we are in a rain shade. means we are really one of the driest areas in Germany. Only to say too many numbers, but the average German rain is 1,100 liters per square meter, and in, in Rüdesheim it's not more than 500. So for me, it's, it's relatively easy especially with a steep, stony, drainage vineyard soil to produce very, very healthy grapes hanging on the vine until end of October, early November. You know, I think like whole life, everything is a chain reaction. Healthy grapes are much easier to press. The sedimentation is much, much easier. Fermentation is so clean, no byproducts. You more or less don't have to filter them. It's so much easier. On the other side, when you have a little rotten grape, it's so difficult to press. It takes longer. They really don't sediment themselves uh, so easy. You have a lot of byproducts into the fermentation and so on. So I really recognize very soon that everything starts with the grapes. And I think maybe it sounds vain or proud, but I think the working hours we spend in the vineyards, on the canopy, compared to other colleagues, I would say it's really three times more. Sometimes, and I know that, because very often I'm really depressed um, uh, when I look to my account every month, how many paychecks I have to write, and I compare it to friends and say, listen, how many workers you have for your X hectares? And when I really compare it to my vineyard size, I really know we have easily three times more employees. And why I know that they are not lazy, I know that we do three times more work means delieving green harvest. What we do since easily five years is that we cut grapes after blooming in half, that they stretch out. And we really found out that the mechanical delieving was much, much better for shutters, that is really what we want to have at Riesling, that even when in the steep winners, we take the leaves away, we are very radical. So even we really try to hurt the little grapes a little bit, that we lose some berries and so on. So especially 13 showed me uh, that it was really, really necessary to do that. And the weather gets more and more crazy. I think that is what we all see. I, I don't know what it is. If the angle of the planet changed a little bit, uh, you know, we had the hardest winter last year. This year was no winter. And in 13 in May, as we had strong frost, it was the warmest, warmest May in, in Sweden. And we had 30 degrees in Moscow. It, it was really, really crazy. And with that craziness of weather, it becomes more and more important to have a great team in the vineyard and do a lot uh, for the quality. And again, 13 was such a difficult vintage, but I really think we, we get the best grapes we ever had. And it was uh, worth to spend every single cent on, on payment. Was green harvesting something that was happening before the 80s? 
No, absolutely not. It was totally the opposite. At this time, people only talked about yield and ton per acres. And as I was a child, it was really a nightmare. As I was harvesting crepes, it was mostly some really honestly rude old retired man walking around through every row with a little stick and even looked under the leaves for for berries. And he really get whistled back to pick up one single berry. And when you honestly forgot a whole cluster, they really would yell at you. And that changed so much. Now, sometimes it depends to the year and to the fruit set. We take away easily 30%, 50% of the clusters. And I really say always when these old guys would come back, they would straight get a heart attack seeing the grapes lying on the floor. But it's absolutely necessary. On the other side, meanwhile, it's not that we do... So much green harvest anymore because with our vineyard management means, for example, we don't plow. We let the grass grow everywhere. We even plant some special flowers to attract insects. And we are, I think it's too complicated to to explain it here on the microphone, but we are more or less the only guys in Rheingau who prune cordon instead. Um, what everyone else does is a single cane pruning and I think the combination having the the rows all, how we say, green means unplowed and cordon makes that in the last years we really don't have to do so much green harvest because, again, there are not so many grapes even there. So we spent much, much more time into deleaving and how is that, that grape cutting in half um, and with only your three fingers um, you go over the grapes, the young grapes, that is more uh, time we spend in the vineyards. So I think I'm really, really able to harvest very, very late. A, from our vineyard management. B, from Rüdesheim, rain shadow, steep drainage soil. So the grapes we get in, they're mostly really, really healthy. By the way, for me, it's very, really hard to do noble sweet wines. It's much too dry for botrytis and it's too warm for ice wine. So um, then we press very gentle. Uh, we have more or less three ways how we work in the presser. So w- when people ask me about winemaking, I say I'm a grape producer and I'm a press house worker. I really think with Riesling, you, you have to work 36 hours a day in a press house. And we always have a lot of intern, although do you say overall employed, that everyone is totally stress-free and have a lot of fun. And we invested in in a lot of big press sizes. So compared to our hectares, we have maybe two times more press capacity than my colleagues have. And the modern style of presses, they are really, really great. And so we are really, we could be able to really pick our all of our vineyards into maximum 15 days maximum. And I think with that crazy weather, it, it gets more and more necessary. I think the times I know as a child where you really could count four weeks for harvest, they are really, really over. You have to be able with your press house team and with your press equipment to really pick every grape en point. It's not that you can say, come on here, we pick a little early and the other let hang a little bit, even too long. You, yeah, I think that is the most important thing that you are really ready to to pick every vineyard when it's time. So um, make sense of bread and butter wine. We drive home with huge grape trailers and pick uh, 
pumps them straight uh, to the presses. But with the top grapes, and makes sense with all the deep slope vineyards, they're all handpicked and even sorted out in the vineyards. We do either a whole cluster pressing or a cold maceration anywhere between 12 and 36 hours. And that is a other thing what I love to be a winemaker is that there is not a recipe book. When there would be one, I think I would not love it as much. So it's not that I say I do this vineyard every year like that. So when a grape trailer comes home and I've told there is not a real stress in our press house, um, they work hard, but it's not that they are freaking out. So when a trailer comes into our yard, everyone when he pulls back, everyone jumps on the back of the trailer and we look how the grapes are. We think, wow, what we do here, whole class depressing, or are we doing skin contact overnight along? This year we, 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 we had an idea and we tried something new. We had a big trailer where we placed on the bottom the perfectly healthy grapes, whole cluster on the bottom. And on top, we brought some mashed grapes. So to have the combination on the ground on the trailer with um, the juice, a cold soak in the whole clusters. And on top, we have some concentration and maceration of the mash. So it's a brand new thing we did this year first time. And yeah, so that is that more or less every vineyard is handled different every year. And then we pump the juice into tanks and let them sit down for 24, 48 hours. So a juice at lights, what goes into the fermentation is really as clean as the wine is. Because what I really want to hear, what is one of my, my favorite words I want to hear from my wine is purity or razor sharp. I think that is really what I'm looking for in my wines. Again, it has a little bit to do uh, with the grapes that they're so healthy. But I think also with that sedimentation process, that uh, juice went into the fermentation really, really clean, nearly like filtered, but only by gravity. And then, like again, coming to a Jane reaction, the fermentation is very, very slow and more or less weak and takes easily um, four till six, sometimes till 12 months. So nearly all the 13 even with that warm winter, nearly every 13 wines are still fermenting. Wow. Yeah. One of the things that I associate with your wines is the purity and the minerality and the kind of force that you mentioned. But one other thing I really associate with lights when I taste the wines, especially when they're at a temperature where it's more obvious, is that fruit is very friendly. There's yeah. A, Terry said buoyancy in his, his text. I, I get that too. And I've seen it across years. Is that something you also see in the wines? Am I wrong? Or is that possibly because of how quickly the wines are pressed? Is that because of that freshness? I think it's all the combination. Again, terroir, what we have in Rudersheim, and you know terroir is not only the soil. I think we have a great climate. Again, very warm at daytime, very cold at nighttime. And that causes a lot that fruit aromas. You know that any fruit in the world, especially grapes, to build a pre-step of a fruit aroma has zero to do with photosynthesis. It's a chemical reaction in the fruit coming with a climate uh, temperature change at cold nights and that we really have a lot. I would say 
With the high day temperatures and the low night temperature, in Rüdesheim you have one of the highest temperature change in wine growing areas. Again, the soil brings a lot of minerality. That's absolutely right. That's my other really thing is that I really do my wine after different terroir. Makes sense when you have only one variety. I don't want that my wine lovers or yeah, lights lovers talk about toasted oak and American oak or French oak and heavy toasted and so on. They should talk about the terroir we have. That is that is really maybe my letter hat. That is terroir because Rüdesheim, while we it's in the bend of a river, we have so different terroirs there. So yes, and I'm so happy that you see it's the same. And I never, I really love it. I always say for me is Riesling. It's like when you open a blinder on a sunny summer day. You are tired. You wake up and you open the blinder, and really sun is coming into your room, into your body. You warm up. You feel happy. I there's a guy in Canada. He always say Riesling is bottled fun, and that is don't get it wrong. That is how I see my wine, and that is what. Very many sommeliers say, Johannes, uh, what I love in your wine is, by the way, they are mostly never corked. Makes sense. We had a lot of through cap, but even with the natural corks, we never had a problem, knock on wood. But it's also said to say, it's so easy to sell a second bottle. And that is, I really don't know what we do. I think it's really the combination, yes, climate, soil, how we press, how we ferment, I think it's that combination and what I forgot so far, it's no doubt the acidity. For Riesling growers, the acidity is really the most important thing. As my mother, as I was a child, heard you always said Riesling is a spinal, the backbone of wine. I really said, oh, what's going on now? But I, I, I really think it's exactly that, that the acidity makes Riesling so special. And you have to see that each longer the hang time is, because first, the photosynthesis brings, produce malic acidity, and later it converts the malic into the tartaric acidity. So each longer the hang time is, each more tartaric acidity you have. And I think that is what makes my wines from the Rüdesheimer back in general so special, even whole Rheingau, because we are a little warmer and a higher ripeness but also longer hang time. So there are a lot of statistic truths and sometimes I hate Germany because there are so many statistics <laughs> we have to do. But from all the statistic, like butt break, blooming, but finally also harvest time, we have, and especially in Rüdesheim, we have the earliest butt break and blooming, but we are very often the latest to harvest the grapes. So, and you know, when you talk about eight days more hang time, you don't, sounds so dramatically but it really is because you only talk about 100 days so uh, especially in the steep vineyards we have maybe easily a week earlier bud break easily 10 days earlier blooming but then uh, easily we can pick the grapes 10 days later so in addition that's easily 20 days of more hang time and with this we have a very very ripen Mostly 100% tartaric acidity. I think that is also a very, very big part. What and it's that I would not came up with that thing when you haven't started it. I think that our wines are a little different, and this is what makes them so different. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but 
we were both at Terroir once. There was like a celebration, Terry, yeah. Terry Thieves celebration, and it was uh, the original Terroir. And there was a light swine from the mid seventies. I think it's seventy four. I could be wrong though. And I even with the age, even with the almost forty years, yeah. at the, this was probably two years ago, maybe three. It still tasted like what I think of as a light swine. That kind of buoyant fruit. That kind of a buoyant fruit. This is maybe a, a thing where I really think it has more to do with Rudesheim, but you have to handle the vineyards and the grapes right, and then it brings these type of wines. And yes, uh, my mother married again. I was age seven, and honestly, these 14 years of marriage was a nightmare for me because my stepfather, but uh, I don't want to talk about it. But he also made really, really good wines. Uh, so the wine you tasted was made, made more or less uh, from my stepfather. And uh, for me, it's, a, it's also a sign that it's more a thing from the Rudesheim vineyards instead so much from lights or that it's finally the combination that someone understands the vineyard right. And it took me a long time. So when you would ask me what was maybe your longest and most difficult experience was uh, really how to trade the vineyards right and uh, which wine comes from which vineyard so for example from back rodland what is so on close on the river and it's such a high ripeness and honestly a relatively low acidity this wine honestly would not good with any residual sugar because you miss the acidity so that was a long learning process to understand which wine should come from which vineyard, but also really to understand the vineyards. And we took over so many vineyards and we really see it took easily seven years that we finally happy with the grapes and uh, can do a proper wine out of it and, and launch it. So there's a, a fantastic plot down in the village it's really in the center of the village it's the monopole we have it's 1.4 hectare called rosengarten and we took over seven years ago and it, it was really the the grapes was massive and the growth was massive so it really took seven years uh, that it uh, lose a little bit of that growing power and now we made the first top dry Riesling. It's still fermenting, but it tastes absolutely great. So yeah, it's, I think it's, it's important, but not, it's the same everywhere in the world that winemaker have to understand, uh, the vineyard and the soil and the variety. Uh, Riesling is relatively easy to grow. There are other varieties that are much difficult, much more difficult to grow, but no doubt you have to understand also Riesling. And especially it would seem to be that you need to understand it, whether you're going to make it dry or off dry, because you make it both ways. You make it with residual sugar and you make it dry. I think I don't have to tell you why I, Riesling, why I love Riesling so much. And I don't talk about Lights Riesling or Ranga Riesling. I talk Riesling worldwide. It's a food friendliness. It's while it's so lively and happy and so on. And another thing is that it really comes like, do you say in a, like a chameleon in, in different colors? A chameleon, yeah. So you can have it dry. Uh, you have, can have a little bit of residual sugar, like in that we say in Germany, Halbtrocken or Feinherb. And then you can have some good amount of residual sugar, like in my wines, Dragonstone or Cabinet wines. And you can really talk about that noble sweet wines, what is honestly... How is that before a little difficult for us to produce? 
And yes, uh, the altitude of our vineyard, the Rhine River, is 80 meter. And the top vineyards and the monastery over there, the monument, is on 380 meter. And this brings easily 10 days difference of ripeness. So, for example, how I said that Rodland is really not good in the most years for wines with residual sugar. We have either on top of the hill, we have Drachenstein, Dragonstone, what ripens so late and shows so much minerality and a higher acidity. And the great fruit aromas with the cold nights close to the borderline of the forest that honestly, it would be really, really hard to make a top dry dragonstone. But why should I do it? Uh, I think with some residual sugar, it tastes absolutely fantastic because I really think a wine in general should have minimum two dimensions. In that case, that's a sugar match is the acidity. But when the third layer or component minerality comes through, like dragonstone, I think it's absolutely great. Or on the other side, we have a vineyard with that little hard to pronounce uh, name Magdalenenkreuz. There, it's so deep sand loam clay soil that here the rot appears first and early. We always have to pick sad grapes in the first weeks of October. And with this early ripeness, we have a lot of malic acidity and in the relationship a much higher acidity. And to have also Magdalenenkreuz try. I think would not be very, very smart. And I think as a spade laser with, let's say, 60 grams with each sugar, it tastes fantastic. So, yes, that is what makes me really happy is that I have a variety, Riesling, what can do or bring nearly everything. And I have uh, vineyards in a bend of a river, what really brings nearly all different climate from extremely warm and ripen up to relatively cold late ripeness, and uh, more acidity. Over the years, have there been vintages that you really remembered? Oh, yeah, there was honestly a lot. Makes sense more after my own vintages. Um, a lot has also to do that no doubt the climate changed. You know, on the 50s latitude, and when you really look back to some decades, like the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, there was maybe two good vintages in one decade. And there changed something, no doubt. I think it's a climate. On the other side, maybe we can talk a little bit about that later. Is also that vineyard management. But yes, it, I think it's a climate what changed. Um, there was some really, really outstanding vintages I had where I really would love to have some more bottles in my cellar because unfortunately I was never able to build up a library because we were so small and honestly I invest a lot, I need all the money, I could not hold the bottles back. So 90 was absolutely spectacular. 97 was really, really good too, by a coincidence because honestly my, my daughter was in hospital and I was not uh, allowed to pick grapes because I could bring all the bad stuff into the hospital. Um, I picked 2000 so late we started harvest on 4th of November and even 2000, what is normally in Germany a terrible vintage because all the grapes was picked uh, anywhere middle of October into pouring rain. So again, we had to wait until early November. So even 2000 was great. 2004 really is one of my top, top vintages. 
2007 was absolutely great here. We had the earliest pluming ever, but a very late ripeness. So it was maybe the hang time record. And then, yeah, there was not what is, makes me very, very happy. That was not a really catastrophe vintage. And uh, even 2011, 12, and I think really 13 with low yield could be a absolutely fantastic vintage. I want to talk a little bit about Kevin Pike. When did you first meet Kevin? <laughs> oh, Kevin, yeah. Um, I met Kevin in 2001 here in New York at the Cremacy Park Hotel. But to be honest, it's not quite right. I Now I remember he visited me the same year on a Terry's customer trip. At this time, he was not uh, working for Skernik. He was a customer from Terry's portfolio. And I remember we, we met first in March 2001, but um, he I was honestly very shy that time. He was very chat-like, so I really honestly did not remember him as I met him back here in New York. We stayed coincidentally. At this time, he lived in, in Ohio, and we met in the lobby at that hotel. And I said, oh, nice to meet you. He said, oh, but Johannes, don't you remember? We met three months ago. I said, oh, shit, no, sorry. So we busted your balls. <laughs> so we went to a restaurant and and I really don't know what happened. It's that I think, um, yeah, it's it, it's my best friend. He says the same from me, so I trust him. And it's funny that people who see us and I heard coincidentally from different sides that uh, they... After they seen us, it's to say, "Wow, you're brothers from different mothers." It seems like and a brother kind of situation. It it is really really true. I don't know what happened, and uh, I had so great times with him in the last uh, thirteen years. It has maybe a little bit to do that as we met that second time here in New York, we sat down and I really remember every minute of that evening. Um. We sat down and talked a little bit and I talked about the early loss of my father and that it's so hard to grow up with a real father. And then he said that he lost his both of his parents same time at a car accident. And maybe it's a little bit cis, but it's that uh, we both love wine and yeah, you know how it is. You, you have a really good friend and you can't say exactly what it is that we... Love this or sad. It's it that is what honestly my wife always says. It's it's amazing. Without your business, you never would meet Kevin. He lives uh, four thousand miles apart, and it's your best friend. And it's true. As my mother died, he came over straight, and we talk so often on the phone. And honestly, we laughed like hell, but we also cried like little children. And yeah, it's it's a very very special person. I think altogether, and especially for me. When you think about Kevin, what do you think about as a guy? What's he seem like to you? In a positive way, crazy. Crazy for quality. When you look to his garden and to his house, he is a great carpenter. I stayed very often in his house in Huntington. Honestly, he same time he made me work hard very much, but it was always a lot of fun and and how much he loves wine worldwide wine i i believe me i travel since 2000 since 91 i travel not to asia in that east direction but in the west direction and north like scandinavia i travel a lot and i know really many people from the wine business but for me who really loves wine uh, is is kevin pike for me one of the 
craziest thing ever. We drove from uh, Denver to Aspen at six hours. And the whole time he talked about a dinner at Little Nell and especially having a lot of wine. And as we arrived in Aspen, we straight went to Little Nell. At this time, it was uh, Bobby Stucky, the sommelier. And first he sat down with a margarita, gets the wine list. And for an hour, he looked through the wine list and decided the wines for the next day's dinner. And uh, I thought, oh my God, that guy's really crazy. And honestly, it was for me one of an epic night in my life, especially why I had the first and only wine ever where I really started to cry as I had it. It was a 1919 Wouvray. So I really thought uh, to the end of the First World War and I, how we say the, the earth was burned. And then it was such a fantastic wine. And uh, yeah, I really, at Little Nell, I really cried drinking that wine. So this is what I really say um, that Kevin is a positive way um, uh, a little crazy and he understands honestly my all my issues as a winemaker and producer that is the important thing kevin was always there and had an open ear how we say and understand and tried to help me a lot no doubt and at some point you entered into a financial arrangement for a vineyard that you work this is a, a really funny thing. More or less in, in the first year, we worked together at Skernik. We were together on a tour. He really said, oh, Johannes, once I want to own a vineyard. And this vineyard should be on the Nahe. Oh, I thought, wow, I was really jealous. Yeah, like, yeah. Wow, yeah. why do you want to? I don't <laughs> told him, honestly. <clears throat> but inside, I really said, wow, why he want to own a vineyard at Naha? On the other side, I really, really no love Naha. Naha wines in the moment for me are absolutely great. Uh, there is a lot of really fantastic uh, producers. And maybe next to Rheinhessen, the, the biggest quality race in Germany in the last 15 years happened at Naha. So really inside I said, no, 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 that can't happen. And I really promised him, Kevin, when I get the next offer to purchase a vineyard, I give you the offer and when you want to buy it, you can buy it. And really, I'm happy that he bought finally that vineyard, but coincidentally, it was exactly my dream vineyard. There was a vineyard what really survived that reorganization of the land. I've told you that from the 9th, 11th, 12th century, we had all the drywall terraces teared down in the 60s, 70s. And there was one crazy guy who really said, no, please not with my vineyard. And there's still a drywall terrace. It's a great vineyard. It's at Kaiser Steinfeld's vineyard. And really, really coincidentally, that old guy told me, do you want to buy my vineyard? And I said, oh, sorry. Uh, wow, should I really tell it to Kevin? But I really think I'm always very honest. And I said, Kevin, do you want to buy it? And that crazy guy said, yes. So so it comes that Kevin owns now um, a part, a big part of the Kaiser Steinfritz vineyard. And he really makes sense. He fall in love with it. I think nearly everyone falls in love with that. I don't want to speak too highly about the Rudesheim Vineyards, but uh, I have so many people, visitors all over the world, and when they really come into the Rudesheimer back, into the vineyard, they really feel a little spirit. 
And especially on Kaiser Steinfelds, when you see the dry walls and you're so high up, you're real straight into the Nahe merging into the Rhine River. On a clear day, you could easily look 80 miles. And it's absolutely fantastic. So always when Kevin arrives, we take a bottle of wine, two glasses, and straight we go to Kaiser Steinfeld, sit on the wall, and um, yeah, have that wine, talk a little bit. And yeah, that is a little or a big part of our friendships that we both fall in love with the vineyard and we have the vineyard, but it's it's not a big part. It's it's a whole thing altogether. The Kaiser Pike, as I say. It's a Kaiser Pike, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So yes. when did you decide then to take the relationship a step further, maybe work directly with Kevin for import? Honestly, even five years ago, he always really said, I have to step out of that really big wheel of the wine business. And I always said, Kevin, when you are ready, I really try to help you and do whatever I can do for you. And I, I finally don't know what really happens in the last four years. We talk frequently about it, if we should do it or not. And I don't forgot the day because uh, it was our um, national holiday, 3rd of October, where I got an amazing long email from Kevin where he said, I'm ready. I'm really ready now. I, I have to leave this. I have to work less. Uh, I want to... Uh, come to my final dream, buying a farm um, and uh, again, stepping out of that uh, big business. And I said, Kevin, I'm ready. And if you want now, let's talk closer about it. So I came over here in November. It was coincidentally Thanksgiving. So we had down in, in DC, we had a great Thanksgiving party. And uh, then we talked more about how we want to do it and how the business model finally should work and i think what is kevin's idea here makes sense as a producer i i totally love the idea that i don't know if it's in english sounds exactly how i mean it kevin want to bring up more like a cooperative of selling wine not so much the classical producing importing distributorship business because to be honest um I never had a father and uh, I don't know what it is. And I think I don't have to see a psychologist. But honestly, my whole life was full of fear and mostly financial fear uh, caused from the fact that we live from something what grows under the sun and is related to the weather. And they could happen so much as a winemaker. I, I had it, it if it was a heat wave in 2003 if it was a tremendous rain in 2010, uh, if it was boars in Kaiser Steinfeld's uh, 2005, who ate 80%. So I'm, I'm really struggling always as a producer to be so related uh, to yield. And on the other side, without again blaming my other importer, uh, but that I think is a problem with the whole agriculture industry. If you be a cattle farmer or something else, uh, the honestly, the lowest um, markup or race is on the producer side. Um, it's not that I'm jealous with them, but uh, to be honest, when I see sometimes uh, what I get for a bottle of wine and how much money 
it's on the shelf. It's to be honest, in England, it's a nightmare. Uh, I really could start to cry when I see how much money I get for my bottle of wine. And when I see it anywhere on a shelf, I think, oh my God, what is going on here? And that, yeah, again, it's, it's so hard for me because I'm really, really thankful to all that importers and I don't want to be unfair. And for me, it's a really trauma uh, when to leave really that, that family I build up here. But um, when I really see it, and I don't want to say that it's unfair, but I think that classical import thing is not a dinosaur, but uh, I think it, it comes to the age. So yes, um, it was on one hand side, so that company, Kevin's idea really is to call it Schatzi. Um, it's a nickname in Germany for your darling. So uh, my wife doesn't like it because she is my Schatzi. But no, it's a joke she understands. So I, I really see that project called Chatsi, Kevin's company, a little bit like in that European big cities, like in Berlin or Paris, where every street goes to a big center, if it's the Arc de Triumph or the Siegesäule, where all the streets go to a big center. So it's a, it's a friendship. It's my fear to be a producer. Um, it's Kevin to be totally overworked uh, at his job now. And these streets all brings us to that center. And I really hope and pray for me and my family uh, that it will work, but uh, I trust into Kevin's concept and I trust into Kevin and bringing up the word family. It's also, I have two children. My daughter is 18. My son is 15 and for sure my son will take over the winery. So he starts in summer apprenticeship also. And then I want to send him or it's his decision, but we thought really sending him maybe for a year to America to A, learn perfect English and going maybe to a good restaurant, to a wine store to learn more about international wines. So bringing up the family thing, it's also something where I really thought what one I give over in 10, 15 years to Antonius and having again all that fear on the producer side for now 40 years, uh, I really want to give him something that he say, okay, when there, when it really looks like low yield, you don't have to be as crazy like your father and sleepless nights and looking to your account and looking how much yield you have and the uh, counted how much turnover and how the profit will look that I really want to give him something where I say, listen, make sense. The winery, winemaking should be always the most important thing in your life. But you have uh, something in America where in the, let's say, worst case is also something good for you. Looking out for the next generation in a way that... To be honest, I do it a lot for the next generation means my son and i think uh, what kevin can build up you know he has two children too and they are so young you really don't know what they want to do but it's that we from that many talks we had face to face and on the telephone uh, that is we really said yes it's something for the next generation means for our children too johannes light says he approaches 50 he's finding the center thank you very much for being here on the show today thank you levy thank you very much johannes lights of lights in the Rheingau. 
All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.